just spent a month and change like exploring websites and exploring brands and gradients and logos and typefaces and you know really finding the voice of the Biden campaign structurally and, and visually. Hi everyone, I'm Amy Devers and this is Clever. Today I'm talking to Senior Creative Director of the Biden-Harris Presidential Campaign, Robin Canner. She and Deputy Design Director Karana Magwood led a design team that effectively imbued the Biden-Harris ticket with an uplifting hopefulness that stressed reliability, inclusive values, and unification. The logo was strong, bold, and unified in a way that didn't break with tradition. And the rest of the communication signaled an attunement with multiple perspectives, generations, and pop culture. From the hot pink Biden and Lady Gaga promos, to the unifying red and blue blending into purple gradients, to the truth over lies message that quickly adapted to a truth over flies, fly swatter, after a fly parked itself on Mike Pence during a debate. The speedy response times indicated a youthful alacrity and modern mindset, while also lending credibility to the kind of swiftness that would be needed for our current crisis-stricken era. The bottles of hand sanitizer printed with Biden's COVID-19 plan signaled the seriousness of the pandemic and the creative adaptability needed to attack this complex social and public health problem. And the victory gradient felt like the dawn of a bright new day. Robin's personal story is twisty and beautifully American. Largely self-taught, she fought hard to find her voice, identity, and tribe, and she's battled bullies, addiction, and self-doubt on her path to purpose. Hers is a story of acceptance, healing, hard work, creativity, collaboration, and community, and feels as bright and hopeful as a victory gradient. Here's Robin. My name is Robin Kanner. I live in Washington, D.C. for the moment. And uh, I'm an artist, most recently creative director on the Biden-Harris campaign. And uh, I do it because it's just what I know. I think it's really the only thing I'm good at. (laughs) So I keep doing it. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. I find it hard to believe that that's the only thing you're good at, but um, I can definitely relate to finding something you're good at and going with it because it feels right. So if you don't mind, can we backtrack all the way to the beginning? I always like to set the stage for how you became you by talking about 
your early years. So I understand you were born in Ohio, but grew up in rural Maine. What do you feel like sharing about your childhood and family dynamic that would lend insight to your creative path? Yeah, I was born in Columbus, Ohio. And uh, when I was about two years old, my dad took a week-long trip to Maine and he wanted to leave Ohio and my mom wanted to leave Ohio. And my mom was basically like, you know, go to Maine for a weekend. If you get a job, we'll move. My dad went to Maine and got a job as an optometrist in this uh, little town called Waterfill, Maine. And uh, we moved into a few different apartments when I got there. We labeled them by color. So like, I remember like the greenhouse and the white house and like the other greenhouse and everything except for the trailer we lived in for like a year. They're all known to me by color. Yeah, I grew up in um, various apartments and homes in, in Waterville and Fairfield, Maine. Like, what kinds of things were you fascinated in and what was, you know, grabbing your imagination? I wasn't really a creative child. You know, I didn't read books. I didn't write. I didn't watch things critically. I was really into basketball. So I played a lot of basketball and I watched a lot of basketball. And well, sports are creative, don't you think? It's like an amazing choreography. Yeah, in some ways, you know, I wasn't thinking of it in in that sense at that time. I mean, well, no, we're kids. Uh, we don't know that yet. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So there was a, a few outdoor courts that I'd play in, and you know, my friends and I at the time, like that's all we did. Like we just, you know, you'd wake up and you'd bike to somebody's house, and then you'd play basketball or something. And I did that pretty much exclusively up until like. I was like 15, 16. All I did was that. So yeah, I wasn't, you know, I wasn't like a a remarkable student or I I really wasn't interested in movies or film or art or, or anything. I just really liked playing basketball and that's pretty much all I did. I'm sure there was a kind of improvisational rhythm that you picked up from that. Yeah, I'm sure there was. Anything that like got me out of the house when I was younger is, is what I did. Basketball was like just a, a, a way to really sort of let off stress and anxiety as a kid. So yeah, I was either playing basketball or, you know, when I got a little bit older, I started to run a lot. Are you still athletic? Yeah, not nearly as much as I was back then. But yeah, I mean, I, I primarily bike now. I have a couple of friends I play basketball with like on the side and I'm running less now because it's really cold outside. But yeah, I mean, it just really was this sort of escapism when I was a kid. Well, how did you start to find your creative voice? I always, you know, really felt left center when I was a kid. Like I I really didn't fit in and I didn't have the strongest outlets, you know, in, in my family, like my dad had this disease called multiple sclerosis, mm-hmm. um, MS for short. It really took like a, a huge priority over stuff that was going on with my family. Mm-hmm. So for me, I started to pick up creativity, I think as a, just a a means to like express when I was like 15, 16 was when I stopped like playing basketball every day and like started to get really introverted. You know, I spent a lot of time in my room thinking a ton and, you know, I I really wasn't making anything, but I was like thinking about making things a lot. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know, it was largely an outlet to deal with what was going on with my dad. Yeah. I can imagine that's, that's a lot for a young mind, body, spirit to interpret and process as you're also trying to find yourself. 
So as you were thinking about making things a lot, what, what kinds of things were you thinking about making? I had like this computer that really had like, like one gig of RAM or something like that. It was really <laughs> small. And I would design like PowerPoints and, you know, they told like these fictional stories of, of just like whatever was happening in my head at that time. And I was listening to, you know, a lot of music when I was 15, 16. And, you know, I did what every kid does, which is like, you like take a lyric you like and write it in different ways and, you know, express it. So yeah, that was really how I was, I was thinking about things. Like I, I just found like a few albums that really sort of hit me um, in a way that like, you know, when you're 15, 16, like that's just what music does. Yeah. And I just started making things around how other people were feeling. It really wasn't, you know, it wasn't about me. It was just like something I related to. And so I think this is interesting just in a general humanities sense. Like nobody was pushing you in a creative direction and it wasn't really being put in front of you, but still like the soul searches for something to relate to. And it seems like you sort of started pulling at creative things because you could relate to it or you, or you needed to find that that thing that resonated. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think that like, you know, growing up in rural Maine, like there wasn't a ton going on and music was, you know, made in other places. So that's, you know, largely what my connection was towards it was just like, you know, I'd read the liner notes and be like, X thing was recorded and mixed in California. And I'd be like, where the heck is California? (laughs) And, you know, I'd I'd Google that and be like, oh, okay. Yeah. Like it gives you a window to the world too. It's yeah. So, so then after high school, I read that you have a, had a self-described kind of messy time, you know, no linear path, let's say, towards the creative profession. Can you share with us about like those pivotal moments or those highlights between high school and what you're doing now? You know, there really wasn't like a massive, nobody really took a bet on me. Like there was, <laughs> there was no chance of like massive success on, on, on my end, you know, like, I barely passed high school. Like I got like a C I'm sure I I actually don't know, but I'm guessing I got like a C something and I didn't really do schoolwork and I I really wasn't interested in it. And I got a job bailing hay for this farm in Clinton, Maine. And I did that for three years over the summers. And I liked that um, because it was like a, you know, a way to get off stress, but it was also like this very masculine space that freaked me out a lot. Mm -hmm because of that sort of inherent masculinity that I had been projecting, you know, there was this thing where like all these, especially in a small town like Fairfield, like a lot of men who were fathers of other children assumed that because my dad was sick, I needed another father. And like, they, they very much tried to parent me. You know, I really resisted that. And I noticed it a lot when I was around, you know, environments like was spelling hay with primarily men who are older and like they would try to like show me the ropes of life. And I, you know, I'd really reject that because to me, I had a dad, even if, you know, he was sick. Was that sort of a territorial instinct? Was it almost defending your dad's honor in some way? Like, yeah, it very much was that. Yeah. Like, I mean, I just felt like place. it bothered me that my dad was sick, but it also made things worse that people assumed that like he wasn't able to parent when like he was. I mean, it wasn't like a, a perfect job of parenting, but I don't think any father is perfect at parenting. But, you know, my dad was very much mentally there and these people acted like he was gone. I just really resented them for that. And, you know, that's why I stopped playing sports a lot was because 
people who are, you know, always like men in their, you know, thirties and forties would be like, you have to play this sport because it will teach you how to be this kind of person or whatever. Yeah. That's sort of interesting. Like that assumption that because your dad's sort of physical vitality wasn't there anymore, that he couldn't parent mentally, emotionally, or by just setting an example of honor and valor with how you deal with this kind of traumatic health sentence. Yeah. Yeah. It was very much a thing. I just really rejected it. And um, what that meant for me was I spent a lot of time in my room alone thinking about things. Okay. But yeah, I mean, I eventually took this job at Wendy's. It sounds strange to say took this job as if like... You, you got recruited for it? and <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Yeah, no, I, I applied for a job at Wendy's. Yeah, I, I worked there for a while and was like the closer where like you like make fries and sandwiches and then you clean up everything. And I had this life where, you know, I was like 17, 18 and I'd work from like 4 p.m. to 1 a.m. And I'd work with these people who had made a career out of Wendy's Mm -hmm. and that, you know, that's obviously totally fine and good for them, but it, it really like rocked me to my core of like, you know, seeing myself at 30 doing that job and being really afraid that that's what my life was going to be. I wanted to get really good at something. So I didn't have to do that. That was like around the same time that I realized I wanted to get out of Maine too. Like there was like a world outside of it. I basically like worked at this Wendy's from like four to 1am and would go home and I just sort of self taught myself design for how to like use Photoshop or Illustrator or like what these basic principles were. And the real root of that was that I wanted to do something that everybody I worked with at a Wendy's couldn't do. And that is wrapped up in a ton of teenage angst and ego and frustration and total just resentment of self. Like it it really didn't have to do with them. Mm -hmm. I I hope they're all really good now. There's a spot in Maine called the Forks, which is like this place where you do pit parties and pit parties in Maine is you go to a gravel pit and you get drunk. Mm -hmm. And one of my managers like their, you know, weekend ritual was like, go to the Forks, get really wasted, come back or I want to use from Monday to Friday, go to the Forks, get wasted. I really resented that. And, uh, I just didn't want my life to look like that. So, you know, I got really okay at design and and art and enough to like start to carve out like a little path for me. So your self-taught trajectory was sort of born out of a little bit of loathing and fear. Oh, yeah. But did you find solace in it at all? Eventually, not immediately. Okay. I mean, at first making art was a means to get out of Maine. I just wanted out. I, it wasn't until much, much later that I actually found joy in making art. But for a really long time, it was just something that I, I felt like I needed to do because if I didn't, I was going to go work at that Wendy's again. <laughs> so it was your it was your ticket out. Yeah, you know, it wasn't like a you know a clear linear ticket out either. Like I I went to this community college and you know took a class in history and did really well in it. And even though I had basically like done below average work in high school because I had like gotten one good college grade. It like got me into this film school up in Northern Maine and basically like went there first semester and flunked out. But before I could actually flunk out, I applied to a different school and like basically got in as like, yeah, film school is not for me. And I did get an A in this like (laughs) one community college course. And 
I like very scrappingly got my way into like a university. Um, nice. Yeah. Work in, yeah. work in the system. Yeah. I mean, the, the system was like not designed for me. So like I needed to find different routes through it. Yeah. I get, I get that. I can see you figuring out the machine and then starting to figure out where you needed to tinker with it to make it so that you could survive within it. You worked the system to get into a university. Catch me up. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Clever is supported by Tools and Weapons, the podcast hosted by Microsoft Vice Chair and President Brad Smith. A recent episode took Brad to Venice, where he connected with Eve Ubelman, a partner whose company, Econem, has developed a game-changing technique for creating digital architectural models so comprehensive they've been dubbed twins. During the relative quiet of the pandemic, Eve and his team used drone-captured photography and powerful AI to create a full-scale digital twin of Venice, a city threatened by climate change and over-tourism. On Tools and Weapons, Eve tells Brad how he's using this incredible technology to help preserve some of the world's most endangered cultural heritage sites in pristine detail so they can be studied and appreciated for generations to come. To stay current on some of the most innovative people working with AI today, follow or subscribe to Tools and Weapons with Brad Smith wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, Clever listeners, we're getting excited for New York Design Week in May. This year will be better than ever. ICFF, North America's leading platform for contemporary design, will take place from May 19th to the 21st at the Javits Center in New York City. I'll be there, and I'm excited to let you know how Clever is collaborating with ICFF for Launchpad at Wanted, formerly known as Wanted Design Manhattan, and the Emerging Designer Showcase. Launchpad is an international platform for emerging designers that introduces new concepts and showcases prototypes of furniture, home accessories, and lighting. It is the best place for manufacturers to meet new designers, discover fresh ideas, and potential products to develop. The best of Launchpad winners will be selected by a jury of renowned industry professionals led by yours truly. And they will go on to be featured in another edition of the popular Emerging Designers Showcase. I'll be leading the Emerging Designers Showcase live on the talk's main stage, where the five Launchpad finalists will have a chance to present their projects to our esteemed panel of professionals. 
it's always a really good time. So mark your calendars for Sunday, May 19th at 4 p.m. Both Launchpad and the Emerging Designer Showcase are presented with media partners Clever, that's us, and Design Milk, and with support from American Standard and Lumens. Visit icff.com to learn more and register to attend. Those are the letters icff.com. Come by and say hi. I would love to see you there. Support for Clever comes from Wix Studio. Instead of reading you another, let's be honest, boring ad script, Wix Studio just sent me this wild-looking Alice in Wonderland-themed website to scroll through and tell you about. So, whoa. This is not the web I'm used to. There's something called Mouse Parallax, which makes it feel like you can go deeper into the screen. And as I scroll down, it's like I'm falling down the rabbit hole. And things are moving in depth and perspective. Even my cursor has morphed into a glowing little orb. There are all these no-code animations that make this place feel organic and alive. And Alice is wearing some pretty cool shoes, by the way. Okay, I know I'm mixing up my narratives now, but we are definitely not in Kansas anymore. Your turn to go down the rabbit hole. Build your next web project on Wix Studio, the platform for agencies and enterprises. So I was at this university called University of Maine at Farmington. My dad had moved into a, a nursing home the you know beginning of my second year. He passed away. Mm, sorry. I think that when somebody dies close to you, there's this theology that it rocks you at that particular second. For me, it didn't. like Because there was so much of an anticipation of buildup to his death that in some ways I was so emotionally ready for like the immediate moment at which it happened. But, you know, I had zero tools for the longevity of what that would feel like. You know, he passed away and the next morning I showed up to class and, you know, was like, this is my first day of sophomore. And like, I was talking to my, what would become my sociology professor. And I was like, look, my dad just died last night, but if this class is really important, like I'd, I'd like to stay. And She's looking at me like, you have to go. <laughs> you know, I was like, oh, okay. You know, when he passed, even though I was sort of starting to game the system a little bit in my life, like it just, it really knocked me. Sure. Um, that's when I started to drink a lot and develop some addictive qualities. Okay. Just misguided coping strategies? Yeah, I don't know if it was misguided. I mean, like... oh. You know, I showed up to a doctor's office and was like, I'm anxious. And they gave me Xanax and I took a lot of Xanax. I would go to these parties and people would know that my dad had died and they were like, have a drink. So that's what I did. I mean, I'm not sure it was misguided as much as I was entirely guided into that path. Got it. Okay. So that was around when you were, what, 19, 20? 19, yeah. Heavy. Yeah, that's where things really started to kick off. 1920, I was full-blown Xanax addict. I started to make better art around that time, too. Not coincidental, but like I started to really get invested in making work. And I, I felt like, you know, for so long, my dad being sick, like, really took prominence over my life. And, and when he passed, I really just wanted to, to fill almost both of our lives up with work mm. and sort of like do all the things that he talked about doing but wasn't able to accomplish 
And I just started making a ton of work and it was all like around identity and expression and power dynamics and, you know, existential crises basically. Okay. Um, And what medium are you working in? At that time I was primarily still doing computer work, but I would like play with installation a lot. You know, I had the studio in Farmington and, you know, I would stamp like an entire studio space with like, you know, the statement, who are we? And, put like this projection of people around it. And, you know, I played with sound a lot. Like I started collaborating with my friends who were musicians and writing sort of songs, but mostly sound art that you would walk into the space and like experience. I just really dove headfirst into like conceptual art, you know, had a couple of professors who very much like leaned me in that direction too. Yeah. As soon as my dad passed, like I just like, it was like all bets are off and I started making an insane amount of work really just went went headfirst into everything. And did that feel like a career path for you or just like a sort of need? It was definitely more of a need. You know, I remember having this conversation with my mom right after I had dropped out of that, because I, I didn't actually finish that school, I dropped out. And it was like right after I dropped out, I was going to go on like tour. And tour in Maine meant like you would play like a week of shows down and back to New York. So like you would stop in New Hampshire, then you'd play in Vermont, then you'd play in Boston. And then like you'd play in upstate New York. Then if you were lucky, you did one New York city show and then you would drive back to Maine. Mm -hmm. There was this band uh, called Cambiata that my friends and I did. Um, It was Sean, Miguel, Dan, Chris and Stan. And my friend Noah and I basically did all the audio and art for it. I basically dropped out of school and did Can Be Auto for two years. And that was like the best time of my life. So yeah, I was very fortunate to, to just sort of sit in a van and talk to people really start to understand how, you know, my, my friend Chris is a really great writer and I've always been really envious about this of him. And I really was able to learn a lot about how Chris told story, which in turn would like later help me figure out how I told my own story. Mm -hmm. But at that time, I wasn't ready for it. I was just, I really needed to watch Chris and Stan and Sean and and Miguel and Dan tell stories. Yeah, you were sort of observing, soaking it up like a sponge, but you were also kind of experiencing freedom with a bit of a creative tribe, maybe. Maine had such an incredible music scene. And, you know, if it wasn't Cambiata, like my friend Dean and I would be making things together. Or my friend Walter played in this band called Six Gig and... You know, Six Gig had like moderate success outside of Maine. You know, he started this new band called Lost on Liftoff. And that band had this guy, Nick, in it. And Nick was like probably like the first man in my life to not try to follow me, but like try to be a big brother. I really respected that friendship a lot. These people were like how I would go out and, and figure out how to make work and how to figure out how to be a person. And yeah, those those two to three years that I did just that was like... Is probably like the most important time for like my creativity and, and adolescence. I can hear it in your voice, but it sounds to me like you felt like your horizons and your possibilities were opening up where at Wendy's you felt like they were stagnant. Yeah. I mean, I just felt like it was freedom. Mm-hmm. And I, I very much needed that at that time. We were all screwed up. I mean, Chris, and he did attest to this, but like, you know, Chris is an addict and I'm an addict and we're all trying to, to figure this out. Stan, 
who grew up in Lewiston, like is still one of my like most fascinating friends for many reasons. One of which is like, he works in a butcher shop and like he has read more Steinbeck books or Foster Wallace or, you know, the Kathy Acker, whatever contemporary or great literature, you know, stands read it. <laughs> so like you have this very like blue collar guy, like talking to you about Hassan or something like that. Um, at a very intricate level. Yeah. I mean, that's how I learned to, I don't know how just, how I just learned to make things, how I learned to appreciate good art and figure out how to say it. And yeah, that time was just, it was just really important. Yeah. It sounds like it. I'm really glad you shared that. That's sort of the unofficial education, right? It's those um, formative experiences, those chapters of life that teach you so much, but they don't really fit on a resume. Yeah. There are just five very different people that Noah and I and we all just tried to figure out. And it was just really fascinating to to figure out how to make art. And, you know, when Cambiata broke up, it felt like, for me, like I was done in music. We all did like a couple of different things. Like, you know, Chris and Santa Miguel and, and myself and folks did like this record called Vanity Heights for a while. And Dan put up this record called Sea Level. And Sean did this thing called My Mayan. Because I wasn't really a musician at that time. I was really only helping them make their art. So, like, I would talk to somebody and they'd be like, you know, what are they doing? Like, really jealous about it. <laughs> Just really in, because we were all still nerds and we all still loved each other. And we all, like, wanted to see what we could make. And Noah and I would jump from, like, a a C-level session to to go to a Vanity Art session. And, like, everybody would be like, okay, well, what, what do those songs sound like? <laughs> Yeah, when it was over, it, I just felt like I had enough knowledge that I could go out and get a job, or at least like lie my way into a job. Yes. So that job was a, a contract gig at Staples in Boston. Yeah, I I sort of bounced between a couple places in Portland after Cambiata, and you know, I just I quickly realized I had to leave, and I met with this recruiter in Boston who helped me get a job at Staples as a, as a brand designer under this guy, Grail. Grail's a sweetheart and I'm, we're good friends now, but Grail's like a very specific guy. Like he was really good at hiring in the sense that he cut through like a lot of bullshit. Mm. And I didn't live in Boston while I was interviewing for that job. So I remember being on the phone with this recruiter and him being like, you have to already live here to get this job. And I was like, well, I don't. And he was like, you just need to Google Maps how you would get to a apartment to that job. So when that grail talks to you about what route you took to get there, you can give him an answer. <laughs> so I was just like, yeah, I, you know, I lived in Brighton or something and you know, I took Route 9 here and, and girl was like, oh, how's the traffic? And I was like, oh, not bad. And yeah, so once I got that job, I, I got this apartment in Cleveland Circle in Boston. Yeah, I like made paper packaging for staples and, you know, designed like what pen packaging looks like or college room dorm dancing water speakers or, you know, style like stuff. That must have been also very educational in a very different way. Yeah. I mean, Grail was like a reformed musician. So like he was like a button, like he wore a button down, but like he had like a sleeve tattoos. Yeah. So I knew he was like one of us. Yes. Good. Um, He just like sort of hit it in, in a corporate environment, you know, he would print these paper packagings and like take out a ruler and like study everything. Like he was a very detail oriented guy. I just learned a ton from that flow of, of just of watching him 
not only manage people, but also like do creative direction. And I got like a, a crash course in design and I worked at that job for about nine months. I had bought this like $500 car to get out from Boston to Framingham, which is where Staples was. And it broke down. And when it broke down, like I just had no way to get to Staples. And Grail had offered me this full-time job, but I would have had to have bought a car to do it. And I hated driving. <laughs> and I was like, no, like, I, like I thank you. I'm, I'm glad you made this offer. But I, I got a job at New Balance because it was only a bike ride away <laughs> from my apartment. <laughs> nice. It was a very, like, uh, zero utilitarian of me. Yes, very practical. And perhaps ambitious, even if it wasn't consciously ambitious. It was ambitious in the sense that, like, I really wanted to make work. And I knew, like, if I didn't do it, then I was going to go back to Maine. I had seen so many musicians in Maine, like, do these massive goodbye parties and then, like, come back in six months. Mm -hmm. And I I really didn't want to be that person (laughs) going to Staples or going to New Balance or whatever like that. Like, making these, like, hard decisions was very much structured and, like, if I don't do this, I have to go back to Maine. I should be very clear. I love Maine. Like it's one of my favorite places in the world now, but I had such a complicated relationship to it when I was in my, you know, early twenties going to new balance was like a, it was great. I built these environments for design and like, I, I had like cool design directors and was able to make like sort of hipper design. It was a cool experience. What did new balance lead to? Cause you didn't stay within biking distance <laughs> for your whole career. <laughs> no. So at the time I was working at New Balance in Boston, I had a couple of friends who were working on this like startup. It was around like trans healthcare. And I went really all in on it and started to work with them. And we made this thing called My Trans Health, which was like this tool around healthcare for trans people. And I am obviously trans. Well, not obviously, you're just listening to this. You really don't know me at all. So like I had made this thing and it had gotten kind of popular on the internet. And you know, we did this Kickstarter and we made this thing and it was at a very specific time and how culture was talking about trans people was when I was, when I was making that. And I was doing this like thing where I worked at New Balance and I would take the Feng Hua, which is, was the Chinatown bus from Boston to New York. I think it's called Lucky Charm or something like now, but I had made this thing and it was all around identity and it was technically a tool that was supposed to help people. But you know, we had rooted the story in ourselves, which meant that our stories were like forefront of it. And because I did that at a specific time, I started to get recruited for a lot of really cool tech jobs. And it was right at the time that big tech corporations realized that they needed to handle diversity and inclusion, which is something that they hadn't done. You know, I interviewed at Facebook, bombed in like the most spectacular way, you know, interviewed in Seattle and took a role there. That's when things started to derail like really hard in the sense that like I had just gotten like a very tiny amount of internet street cred (laughs) and people who were designers on the internet that I thought were cool were talking to me Mm -hmm. and these big corporations that, you know, as a person who grew up, you know, lower class in Maine, were offering me a lot of money Mm -hmm. (laughs) to go do Everything basically, like the beginning of the end, like what I call that period of time. Like this was 2016 and it was a crash. Did you feel like you were a token hire or what kind of crash are you talking about? I definitely was. 
and, and this is where I learned a lot. I learned if you're going to be a token hire, like you should like really not ruffle feathers <laughs> and you should like recognize, first of all, you, if you're going to be a token hire, like just don't take the job. Before when I was trans, you know, and, and working at New Balance or Staples like that, like I had nothing on the internet. Like I had done nothing. There was no. You weren't known for being trans. Yeah, exactly. Like I wasn't, um, I didn't have to be perfect. Yeah. Like I just could have been. Mm-hmm. And the second I made my trans health, there was a lot of pressure on me to make every step correct. Like you had to be model trans? Like I had to be really perfect. Like, you know, some people, you know, were awkward around it. And then I would have to like make them not awkward. I had this person who I worked for who like. Had to help everybody feel comfortable with it. And that. Yeah. yeah. Like, you know, the person I worked for was queer and like felt really good about himself for hiring me. (laughs) And, you know, I spent a lot of time in my day job, like talking to him about it to reaffirm his leadership of and reaffirm his decision of bringing me on. You know, I had this director who would like parade me at Christmas parties to his family. And then like, when it came time to promoting me, would be like, well, no, of course not. And I'm like, to in front of your daughter, you can tell me that I'm like this hero, but like, you don't want to give me a promotion for my work. It really freaked me out for many reasons. One of which is that I didn't know how to be perfect, but I had just gotten like a tiny bit of popularity on the internet for being perfect. Uh. And it created a lot of hardships in my head. How I dealt with those hardships is I like drank a ton in my early twenties because things had gotten so rough on Xanax. I knew I couldn't have taken that, but I did drink a lot. And, you know, it hit this point for me where I realized that like I had to leave Seattle because like there just wasn't space for me. It felt like every step I needed to take was perfect. And there was no way for me to take a perfect step anymore. Uh, And felt painted um, into a corner. Yeah. And, you know, I had this therapist who I was trying to process everything with my dad and every step felt wrong. And I felt like I had gotten really far away from talking about art in a van with musicians. Yeah. And I can imagine that you're also, if things are on the outside looking like they're going well, like you have this well-paid position at a really established corporation, you might be telling yourself like, what's wrong with me? This should be good. I should be happy. Yeah. I had this therapist who prescribed me SSRIs. I took them to level me out because I was on such a high, low trajectory of, of daily life. I had basically like accidentally skipped a dose and one day like decided like I was going to like leave <laughs> Seattle, give my dog to a friend and move to New York. And I made like a snap decision like within a day that I was going to do that. And, and a week later I was gone. Like I didn't hang around. You know, it was just sort of this like microcosm of the situation. I didn't know how to be me. And the way I handled that was trying to be the person that people thought I was. Then when I made a misstep, it really screwed me over. I didn't know how to handle that. So I left Seattle and, and, you know, moved to New York and I, I get a job. I'm like, I'm just like an emotional wreck where like my ego is all over the place. And, you know, on one hand being told that like, I'm this like pristine model trans woman. And on the other hand, I was wasted every day. And I handled that, that wastedness by like looking down at the ground all the time or not making eye contact or not talking to people or like really, I was really evasive. 
was terrified of the world, like just absolutely terrified because I did not know how to exist within it Ugh. in a way that suited me and the people around me and did such a bad job at being a human being for like, you know, the first year I was in New York. I want to hug you right now. I hope that's okay. <laughs> no, it's, it's okay. I mean, I, everything shook up really well. I mean, I just didn't know how to be a person. I mean, that's it. Like, mm-hmm. like I, I really didn't have the tools to be a person. And in return, like, I ended up being a really bad person, which meant that, like, you know, people were paying me to give talks about making my trans health, and I would do them wasted because I didn't want to do them, but I felt like I had to do them. And this was largely pressure I was putting on myself, not pressure other people were putting on me. Right, yeah. But, I know what that's. But like I'd I'd put myself to such a standard. An unmeetable standard. Yeah, I just could never meet it. And the second I realized I was in a space and couldn't meet it, I would get wasted. And it would be like, great, now now this isn't a problem that I have to deal with. This is a problem that somebody else has to deal with. It was really crass. And it crashed in April of 2018 where like I left my job, I broke up with my partner, and I got hit by a car. Holy fuck. on, on, On a bike. In the course of like two weeks. Were you sober and, uh, when you got hit by it? Or were you drunk when you got hit by a car? I uh, No, I was hungover though. Uh-huh. You know, like I just got side swiped, which is like a thing that happens if you're a biker in New York basically all the time. And I had, you know, probably zero to nil about what to do, you know, about, I mean, this guy just made a turn, <laughs> you know. Yeah, but still it just felt like everything was collapsing on you in rapid succession. That's when I decided to go for the gold. <laughs> Like, I made, like, a rule of it. I was like, I'm going to not be in society for three months. Like, it was a real, like, leaving Las Vegas style of just, like, drinking. Oh, God. You know, any friendships I had in New York, you know, revolved around drinking. And, you know, I wasn't really making good art. And everything I was making was really morose and sad and, like, felt really big. And and, in July of that year, I (laughs) I went to a meeting and I got sober met a sponsor who very much saved every part of my life. Oh my God, I want to hug you again. Shout out to my sponsor. She just dug me out. Like I was a person who was operating without tools for life for a really long time. And she came along and gave me like a ton of tools to have to like be a person. I spent 10 months not working really. I mean, I like freelance, but really late and going to meetings every day and sitting in a circle and talking about it. I have to back up. Like, how did you pick yourself up and take yourself to that first meeting? You know, I was so far away from from everything. I was really far away from the world. And, you know, I really wanted to get involved in the political cycle. And and, and this was 2018, so I knew it was going to be in two years. I was nowhere near the place to do that. And basically, it was like my second or third week into sobriety. My sponsor showed up to this meeting late. And like had like scabs all over her arm because <laughs> she rides this moped and she got in this accident. She was only at that meeting because like a person that she had recently slept with was next door. And when she walked into the room, I was like, man, <laughs> like this woman must have like two days. Like I'm in better shape than her. <laughs> She's shared and she was like, yeah, you know, I have 13 years and here's how. And I'm just like, wait a minute, <laughs> you have 13 years? And I immediately was like, you, <laughs> like if I'm going to have a sponsor, it's you. You know, we started to run the steps that night. She just took me through resentments and fears, which had me write, rewrite this sentence. Like, I have resentment at whatever it is, because I fear that X is going to happen. I wrote that sentence over and over again for 10 months and wrote out everything that I was afraid of, everything that I resented, started to develop tools to let it go. 
Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus. Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Yeah, so, you know, about 10 months into sobriety, I'd, I'd left outpatient rehab and sent like a few notes to people making amends because I had just really fucked up. And I think I had granted myself an excuse for fucking up because there was so much pressure on me being like this perfect trans person. You know, I had to accept that I actually did fuck up a lot of things and like it didn't have to do with anybody else and it was my own shit. Made a lot of amends is then I, you know, I took a job at jigsaw which is you know part of google and it was like my first job back into the world post like exiting reality Mm -hmm. and i remember talking with my manager and just laying it out (laughs) you know i'm sitting here he's like can you design this product i'm like i can but you have to know like this is what happened to me over the last couple years and like i really want to be a better person figure out how to like do this like you just have to know like where i'm coming from and he did something really incredible which is that he created space for me And I would come to realize that people who are really, really good at their jobs are people that create space for the people they work around. He did that very, very, very well. How how did he do that? Like, what what shape did that take? You know, he just bought me time. Like, if I was stressed about something, like, he would send this email being like, she needs another day. And somebody would be like, oh, okay. Or like... Like I couldn't work until midnight every night because I had to go to a meeting. <laughs> so it like hit 7 p.m. and I was like, hey man, I got to go to a meeting. And he was like, oh yeah, go for it. He just created space. By doing that, I basically relearned how to be a designer. Because before I was, everything was so wrapped up in ego or so wrapped up in cool trends or something like that. Mm-hmm. I had kind of, I never really like thought about just like traditional design or traditional art or anything. And I spent six months making this specific product and it had nothing to do with making money for somebody. It had to do with like around disinformation and stuff. And I knew it actively did good in the world. You know, I spent six months just making that and that totally realigned me and like reminded me that I actually could design. What an affirming situation. It was really, really amazing. Basically, you know, after those six months at Jigsaw, I had been a highly 
focused on Beto O'Rourke's presidential run after that Senate race. Because during the Senate race, I was in rehab. So when Beto had his moment of like, you know, NFL players having the right to kneel, like I was sitting, you know, in rehab being like, if I ever get out, like that's the guy I want to work for. Wow. You know, when he announced, I sent this email, my friend Victor, who had worked on Hillary's campaign with this guy, Rob, Victor was like, yeah, Rob's leading the digital. If you wanted to go there, just let me know and I'll email Rob for you. You know, Rob and I got on a phone call and he was like, yeah, I'm in DC. I'm moving to El Paso, Texas, like tomorrow. And I was like, okay, what's your team look like? And he's just like, it's me and like, maybe you. I was like, okay, so like, I'm going to have to move to El Paso. And Rob's like, yeah. You know, I, I was on the phone with him. I was like, listen, like, I, I want to do this, but you have to know, like, these are all of my secrets. <laughs> like, this is my drinking. This is like, I used to do pills. Like, you know, I just got out of rehab. <laughs> like, here's everything that's bad about me. And I'm going to tell you completely up front. And then you can make your decision on if you want me to come to El Paso. And, you know, Rob was just like, oh, yeah, for sure. <laughs> like, come to El Paso. And it's like, okay. <laughs> I mean, um, on some level, didn't it kind of feel nice to just expose what anybody could find out about you and then have somebody be like, yeah, that's not a big deal. I want, I just want you to design, but I need you to do it in El Paso. <laughs> yeah. Cause I had, you know, I had been so scrappy about everything my, in my entire life. Like, I had totally been trying to work around systems and like I'd spent so much time trying to, go around things. And when I got sober, like a big thing about sobriety is like being completely honest with yourself and, and trusting like a higher power. And because things had gone so well at Jigsaw when I was very truthful, like I was like, I just want to start this one <laughs> in that same honesty. And I was like, here's everything. And, you know, in Rob's perspective, he's thinking like, wow, you know, this person used to work at Google and, you know, has art shown uh, in these galleries wants to do this. Like, yeah, I'm going to take her on. Yeah, then I, you know, I then moved to El Paso, <laughs> designed a campaign for six months, you know. Man. And El Paso is like the most remar remarkable place in America. And I fell totally in love with it and fell totally in love with the work and the staff and the structure and the lifestyle. It felt like a really amazing summer vacation, even though it was like some of the most intense work I had done in my entire life. Like I had never, when I was a kid, I never went to camp or anything like that. Mm -hmm. And like going to El Paso and spending you know, 16 hours a day with my coworkers, like ended up feeling kind of like this like strange summer camp. I, I love that you had a, a strong, collaborative, positive experience working for somebody that you believed in, obviously. Can you paint a little bit more of that picture of what you fell in love with about El Paso? The first thing I did when I moved there was like try to find a home group and for meetings and I had gotten sober in New York and like the majority of New York drunks are like artists that felt like they should be Jackson Pollock, <laughs> like felt like doing, you know, the, it was a real like Jack Kerouac thing of like, I'm going to get drunk and make the best art. Mm -hmm. And then I to El Paso and you're next to the Ciudad Juarez, which is the drug capital of the world. And like people are getting sober for very different reasons down there. Mm -hmm. And I'm in these AA and NA meetings and like, it's a different situation. <laughs> like these are these are people who like you know really had to like it, you know sobriety was more about just like wanting to make good art. It was about like life or death situation. And I fell in love with the conversations, and I fell in love with the people, and I fell in love with the sky. Like El Paso, like has the best sunset and the best sky, like in the world. Like it's beautiful. The saturation of a sunset in El Paso is like uncanny. It's, it's, un, it's stunning. You know, I had been there for about a month 
when there was a, a mass shooting in, at the Walmart mm. um, in, in Sila Vista, which is like about like a mile from where HQ was. And that shooting was a very intense experience. And, you know, what I remember the most from it is how El Paso came together as a community. And you'd see El Paso strong everywhere. And the week from when that happened to the following weekend, like, I only worked. Like, it was only, it was like either you were, you know, rushing to get blood or rushing to help people in the community out. Whatever you were doing, like, you weren't, the only thing that we as a staff was doing was working. Mm -hmm. And you know, I remember the first time I went to a meeting after that experience, like I was in an Uber to like, cause all the El Paso meetings are like five miles away from downtown. And, um, I was in this Uber and this guy was just kind of like, you know, what are you doing in the city, et cetera. And, you know, like he's like writing down his phone number. He's like, thank you so much for, you know, your work. Like if you ever need to get from place A to B, like just call me. And it was just a community that came together really strong and responded to the moment. That was the moment, you know, for me where like joining a campaign and doing political work was like all the shit about me was gone. It was just like, <laughs> I'm doing this and it's, this is for the country and the way bigger purpose than just me feeling like an afraid egotistical burnout, which was like the reason why I was making art for 10 years was that. And, you know, the shooting happened and it totally just changed everything. And uh, yeah, it, it was, it was one of the hardest things that I witnessed, but. At the same time, seeing El Paso come together created so much love for me in that place. Yeah. And also you're witnessing it with, with clear eyes. Yeah. There was no, you know, no evasion of reality. Yeah. Like there's this restaurant um, in El Paso called Tabla. This guy, Kenny, who works there and, and I would see Kenny every night and he knew I didn't drink, but he would always like give me a Topo Chico and like we would talk and like you know, Kenny was the best and still is the best, you know, him and I still talk, but like, that's the reason why I loved El Paso. When our campaign ended, I just felt like, you know, the job wasn't finished. I made a mission to finish the job and, you know, went to the Biden campaign and and did just that. Well, I love that you fell in love with El Paso for the people and for the skies. And I think those... Yeah, the sunsets really... That's where the gradients come from. Yes. <laughs> if you look, I was, was going to ask you, you at, about gradients. <laughs> yeah, if you look at the sky in El Paso, they'll give you the greatest gradients of all time. <laughs> well, I love that they, you know, made such an impression on you. And I think you were, you know, I don't want to project onto you, but I think you were in this kind of raw and also open and clear space to receive it. Yeah. And that sounds really beautiful. And I'm so glad you had that experience. And I am dying to know now about the Biden campaign because you creative directed the Biden Harris campaign and now you're creative directing the Biden inaugural committee. So what is all that about? Like, what does it look like, feel like, sound like I need to know everything. Sure. Rob, who was with me in El Paso, had gone to the Biden campaign. I think he went in December. And in January, I basically went up to Philadelphia, which is where the HQ was. And him and I, like, we just did what we used to do, which is like we went to dinner and sketched out ideas and thought about what could look like this or, you know, that or whatever. We left the conversation where it was like if Biden wins two out of four between South Carolina, Iowa, New Hampshire, and Nevada, then I'd come to the campaign. But if not, then like there was no way that Biden was going to lose three (laughs) and then somehow win the primary. When the campaign did lose Iowa, New Hampshire, and 
Nevada. I just thought it was over. And I'm, I just like that. I was just like, I guess that's it. And there are people around me who are making different bets on who it was. I just kind of like refused to not follow Rob. And I just like, I would talk to Rob and he'd be like, it might be over, but like there's a, there's a possibility and here's what it would look like if it did happen. And I just very much like made a bet on Rob and Biden. And I was like, if it's them, I'm doing the work. If it's not them, then I'm not doing the work. <laughs> like it'll be somebody else. I just went all in on Biden. And when um, South Carolina happened, um, you know, South Carolina was great, but if you know, go back and watch the tapes, like people thought it was like a fluke. Mm-hmm. They were like, oh, good, for, good for Joe. But when South Carolina happened for me, that's when I like got to work. Karana Magwood, who's the deputy design director on the campaign, she was already there and she was building stuff and Abby was there. And I just like had a month where we all started to make work. Everybody, like the country was coming around Joe. And it was like this really great month where nobody was really expecting anything out of the campaign, but I was able to like explore what a brand identity would look like for the general election. You know, that's what we did. We just spent a month and change, like exploring websites and exploring brands and gradients and logos and typefaces and, you know, really finding the voice of the Biden campaign structurally and and visually, you know, by the time Michigan had happened and the time that we, we sort of got around to, Texas and understanding the delegate count and like everything just started to really shake itself out. Like I had everything in a pretty good place with the team. There was obviously there was a lot of questions about how to launch it. And we see typical brands like launch, like there's like a flip overnight, like that's how an ad agency would do it. Like you just like overnight, they'd be like, here's a new thing. Mm -hmm. And you know, we didn't do it like that. Like I really thought our serif needed to be a lot stronger And when everything in Minneapolis happened with with George Floyd, I was like, I can't use this like sort of weak serif and to talk about this moment. So I have to flip over to Mercury, which is what I knew was going to be the serif anyways. And so Karana and I talked about it and, you know, I'm sure to the outside, it felt like a very small decision, but to us, it was a really big deal because that was the first piece that went out and it met a very important moment in this country. Mm-hmm. And, you know, shortly thereafter, Decimal, which was the other typeface, went out and we started to push illustration styles in it and started to push type decisions and color decisions and gradients started to come into life. You know, we had, we had redone the website and like that was out. So by the time Harris was selected as a running mate, we had all these pieces in place. It was basically like everything that hadn't gone out the second Harris was announced, like just like the, the last pieces flooded through. From there, you just hope it works. (laughs) The bulk of the work was those, you know, five months-ish. And Karana and I had done so much hiring. You know, we we built a team from basically four people to 25 people in a month. And we had all these theories about how our oppo should feel or how, you know, anything should feel. And, you know, we had made these really risky bets. And I just felt really confident in our decisions and I felt really confident because Rob felt confident and like Rob had been my North star for like a year at that point. We just went for it on the creative and we had an incredible team and we used the strength of everybody's for everybody's skill set and like use the strength of our experiences just designed and practice, you know, especially for the debates and, you know, the debates were going to be such this big deal. And we as a team ran like, five separate mock debates together to like, just to know 
how tight we can get. And, you know, we did the same thing for town halls and we would watch movies together remotely. We just were a campaign family, even remote. I mean, when we won, it was like, it's the craziest feeling ever. I, <laughs> because- I can't even imagine. And I just had this feeling like, did anything about this kind of feel like basketball? Yes, only because, well, I mean, for many reasons, one of which is like during the campaign, I mean, I was thinking about my dad every day. My dad loved politics and was a staunch Clinton Democrat and loved Biden. You know, he passed away before Obama's time, but like loved Obama. Mm-hmm. And like, I felt like I was like fulfilling his mission in, in a lot of ways and fulfilling mine in my own way. And it felt like basketball. It felt like chess. It felt like it just felt like a game. But I'm obviously not a game, but it felt like the, the most important work possible to do. There was a lot of noise coming at Corona and I from like various parts of the industry being like, you know, Biden-Harris campaign design is boring or simple or whatever. And I'm just sitting there with Corona on the phone every night being like, no, this is working. Like, yeah. just look at the numbers. Like this, like, this is actually working. I was really impressed. I mean, I just responded to it. It was everything it needed to be without trying to be something it wasn't. Yeah. It, and everybody made jokes about this, but like our very no malarkey campaign, like our design didn't have any malarkey in it. Like it was very <laughs> yeah. structured and straight, straight ahead and unifying. Like it had all these components that made it us. Cron and I every night would just like talk and be like, I like, this is it. Like, I'm pretty sure this is what it needs to be. That's what we did. I love it. As you were telling me that story, flashes of your life came to me. I mean, this is just, I'm listening and I'm paying rapt attention, but it seems like another really important moment, similar to being in a van with some creatives who are all kind of driving at the same purpose. Yeah. I mean, it was exactly that. And the way that we came up with the type system was very musical my team would tell you this because we talked about it every single day, but like, you know, Barack Obama speaks in three word hits. Like, yes, we can. Our three really loud major chords, you know, Hillary did the same thing. I'm with her stronger together. These are three to two word loud major chords. Joe will be like, we're in a battle for the soul of the nation, which is great, but seven words and four of them you want people to forget. (laughs) And because of that, like the type system needed to have rhythm. And we came up with that. I was playing guitar one night and I was like, okay, so like the prepositions and conjunctions can be like, like a D major, which is like a softer chord, but like big action words like battle, solo nation can be like large F major, like sounds. That's sort of the, the structure of, of how we came up with things. And, and that has like a very much, I learned that from Caveata. <laughs> you know, I learned that from Sean being a nerd about everything. Oh <laughs> and my God, that's such a wonderful insight to your process. The gradients, there was such, such a conversation about like whether you're Democrat or Republican. And like what I loved about the gradients is that it blended the reds and the blues together to be purple. And it was like, we were sort of all in it together. And it became less about separating people and more about unifying people. And the gradients really accomplished that well. Those are the pieces that I was trying to instill into the campaign. But, you know, I mean, I, I was still being called. <laughs> like People still like wrote like Biden campaign. This is, you know, another boring graphic. But now that we win, it's like, oh, Biden campaign done it's like all this remarkable work and Robin Kenner, but her next effort probably won't be that good or whatever. Do you find it easier to tune out that noise now and not like hold yourself accountable to these unmeetable standards? Yeah. Like I just, I can't control that. And like, if I do try to control that, 
I'll become like a really bad person. <laughs> so, well, you're not afraid of like becoming a bad person, are you? You know, in sobriety, we have this concept of being spiritually fit and like being spiritually fit, I think on some level comes down to like being a solid person. And one of the hardest things I had on a campaign, especially the one that we just had was like, you know, so much about sobriety is about giving yourself up to God or a higher power and working under him for him. When you're in a campaign, you have a lot of power and it can be hard to reckon with God and hard to relinquish your power and relationship to a higher power in, in, in that work because you're doing such important work. And like, this isn't like before when I had like ego working at a tech company, this is like lives. I had a lot of reckonings with God and, and how I understand him and how I understand the world through the campaign work because, you know, I had gotten sober on this idea that I am just a person who works under God and my higher power. And then all of a sudden I had been given a lot of power. That was the stuff that I found just sort of interesting to wrestle with through the work. It's like you've been given a sharp tool and you have to trust yourself to wield it for the greater good. And so yeah, instead pretty of- much. I mean, you just like caught my sponsor all the time being like, I think I'm in the right pocket here, but like, I, I might be off. <laughs> and, you know, because of COVID, I wasn't in my normal routine, which is like go to in-person meetings and sit in a circle. I was like on these Zoom meetings, which like technically anonymous, but like are really easy to break anonymity. So like I ended up listening to like a lot of meetings while I was working and I just had to like really have a solid, firm relationship with sobriety and with a God in order to do this work really well. I leaned on it really heavy when I felt like I was just starting to lose control a little bit, especially that last month. I mean, that last month was like the craziest month of my life. But I had a team of 25 and we, you know, Karana and I were trying to build this thing and we had like 10 different teams that we were supporting. And once you get through like the actual work, then you have to just make sure like the sociology of it works. And once you get through all that, I just felt really confident in the decisions that we were making, even if there was like some noise being like, these decisions are wrong. You just like stay the course and like trust that the, the process is there. That just made the victory like when it finally happened on November 7th, it was like a weight had really been lifted from me. I think pretty much everybody else on the campaign too. And a lot of people out in the world too. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean. And so, uh, you know, on behalf of so many people who respect what you do, thank you for designing a campaign that yeah. could communicate and help us get this election. Yeah. And teamwork. Yeah. 25 of us. Yes. Okay. Yeah. I, I know there's a lot of people involved and I, I appreciate you giving credit where credit is due and the collaborative energy of the whole thing. Cause you can lift a lot more when everybody's using both their hands. So you won the election, but what now? Because it still feels really urgent and important. Yeah. You know, when I set out to do this work, I was very much like in talking with my sponsor being like, I wanted to win the election or have a piece of being just involved in winning the election. And I've done that. And I'm not trying to get greedy with God. Like, <laughs> and I know that sounds crazy, but like what I asked of my program to do, I've accomplished. And it's a very sweet feeling that I don't want to take for granted. And because of that, I'm taking things very slowly and I am, you know, checking with my body and my health and my mind and really starting to like consider where I slot into things and, and really just not being greedy with my higher power. Like I've done the thing that I set out to do. 
now what's next? And, you know, what that probably looks like is like, you know, writing about this a little bit more and continuing this work on some regard, but maybe not full and holistically as I've been doing for the last couple of years, but, you know, just continuously doing good work and, and giving back and, and being in a community and feeling serenity to the world. And, you know, you could be listening to this in five years or 10 years or, you know, in two days, I, I really don't know. But for me, I'm a month removed from the end of the campaign, which means that's very fresh in my mind. And there's the inauguration and the transition in the White House, and there's all these pieces. And I'm just trying to take every one of them very slowly and with grace, because I just don't have the fortitude to continue at the level that I was at for two years straight while staying healthy. So, you know, I'm, just, I'm not trying to be greedy with God. I'm just trying to do some good work and, and hope that I can just like continue that for, for as long as I'm allowed to. I hope to see many, many more Robin Canner gradients. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Gradients are beautiful. They're also in the sunrises and the sunsets. You know, I was always wondering, this is sort of anecdotally, but like so much of what my dad wrote in political op-ed was about how much he didn't like Reagan. <laughs> and, you know, Reagan's whole thing was that it was like a new dawn in America, a new day. So many of the gradients that we did on the campaign was about sunrises <laughs> and I always wondered if somebody was ever going to call it out <laughs> to be like, <laughs> these are very Reagan-esque gradients, <laughs> but like nobody ever really called it out. But it was sort of like this inside joke I had with, you know, in my head with my dad of just being like, I bet you would have gotten a kick out of this because <laughs> I'm riffing off of that. I like it. I like it. Thank you for sharing that uh, inside joke. <laughs> I can't even tell you how much I've gotten out of this conversation. I feel close to you and I feel enlightened and I'm so grateful that you shared so much of your story with me and with our listeners. And I just can't thank you enough. Thank you for having me. This has been awesome. Thanks for listening. To see images of Robin's work and read the show notes, click the link in the details of this episode on your podcast app or go to cleverpodcast.com, where you can also sign up for our newsletter. Subscribe to Clever on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you enjoy these interviews, would you please do us a favor and rate and review? It really does help us out. We love chatting with you on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You can find us at Clever Podcast, and you can find me at Amy Devers. Clever is produced by 2VDE Media with editing by Rich Straffolino, production assistance from Laura Jaramillo, and music by L1011. Clever is proudly distributed by Design Milk.